0: You may be seated. I I encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We are in between series of sermons. We're going to be looking at Philippians 3 as sort of just a standalone message. Uh, We're going to talk about change since most of us are thinking about it right now anyway. So we're going to try to give a biblical perspective on change. How can I change and then uh, next week we're going to start a new series we're going to look at the minor prophets everybody's excited everybody loves the minor prophets which one is your favorite minor prophet which one is it all right back great. so we're going to look at uh, about i think six or so minor prophets and we're going to try to try to get to the major issues in the minor prophets so we're not going to go verse by verse of every prophet we're going to try to take a theme from each particular prophet and kind of take it as a whole book and see how we can apply it to our lives so i'm excited about that we'll start it next week and then um, uh, today we're going to be looking at philippians 3 of course it is new year's everybody's made their resolutions right washboard abs by easter right that's mine i don't know if you, you want to join in on that but seems reasonable to me um, it does require a lot of work but it's possible. Many of us are looking for a fresh start. We're excited to become healthier, right? We're excited to eat better, exercise more, enjoy more fulfilling relationships. We want to, some of us want to learn a new language. Some of us want to learn better the language that we already speak. Uh, Some of us are picking up a hobby, right? Uh, Some of us are committing to read through the Bible in a year, those kind of things. And yet, Today is what the 4th of January. I think some of us are probably already disillusioned a little bit, right? Uh, Some of us may have given up on the resolution or two already. Uh, Have you signed up for a gym membership? If you have, have you been to the gym yet? Uh, They want you to sign up a two-year contract. They want to lock you in, and then you never go to the gym again. It, it happens. It's hard to change. Once you commit to a particular change, you realize how hard it is because you have all those existing habits already well established in your life. And so it's easy to get discouraged. it's it's easy to give up. It's easy to keep adjusting your resolutions until they're they're gone altogether. And so how do we how do we change? That's my question for us today. And so we're going to be looking at a passage in the Bible that speaks specifically to this issue, Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. This is Apostle Paul speaking just about that issue. So let me read this to you, Philippians 3, 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. have attained well that's our text I want to look at four things in regards to change I want to look at the need first secondly at the goal thirdly at the process of change and lastly at the motivation the need the goal the process and the motivation I'm gonna bring you down low a little bit and push you on some issues but I'm towards the end I promise I will lift you up and give you motivation for change and hopefully you leave encouraged and resolved again to do what you need to do in your life. Now let's look at the need for it. Paul starts with a disclaimer. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Now please remember who's writing these words. The apostle himself, the man who wrote a third of the New Testament, right? There's 13 letters of Paul in the New Testament the man who almost single-handedly converted the Roman world to Christ. You know, some people uh, say that Christianity is Paul's religion because he was so influential, he was so effective in spreading this new message of God's grace to all sorts of Roman and Greek cities. This is the man who had some remarkable spiritual experiences. And some of them he writes about in Scripture. He talks about visions talks about being lifted up into heaven and and knowing things that God can only reveal in a mystical vision like that. Most of us can't identify with that. We haven't had those kind of experiences. This is a man who has performed some stunning miracles. If you read the book of Acts, you see just how how different Paul's ministry was from my ministry, perhaps. He, He did things by God's power that most of us will never experience. And yet, this is the man who says, I want to do better. I want to keep growing. Because I'm not perfect, he's saying. I haven't achieved, I haven't arrived yet. I haven't obtained this prize, this goal of my life. I still need to keep pushing. I'm going to press on because there's still more to learn. There's still more change that needs to happen in my life. He's writing these words, by the way, in prison right? So not only is he very accomplished on the one hand, and it's easy to just sort of rest on the laurels of of success, but it's also uh, understandable if he would be discouraged. And if he would say, well, I've done my part, right? This is the end of my life. This is the end of my ministry. What else do I need to change And, and be discouraged about it? Prison and wait until it's all over. And yet there's no complacency In Paul's words he's saying I haven't arrived yet I haven't obtained the prize I will keep pushing I will press on because I'm not perfect yet and so he is determined to change now I hope that it's an encouragement to you right because none of us are perfect and none of us should be complacent if Apostle Paul still hopes to change if he still hopes to grow and he thinks he needs to grow because he's not perfect, well, none of us are. We need to change. We can't be complacent either. The, the root of change lies in what John Piper calls holy dissatisfaction. We must be dissatisfied with our progress, with who we are. We must want more change. We must pursue God and expect Him to continue to grow us, to continue to change us, to continue to teach us and use us. This is a normal Christian response to our lives, It's to say, I'm not perfect, so I don't need to be complacent. I don't need to settle for what it is now. I don't need to just kick back and say, that's fine. I need to keep going. I need to keep changing. What we find both in the scriptures and in the vast experience of the church through the centuries is that the more mature believers realize how much more they still need to change. Even those, and you know we don't believe that in this church, it seems pretty obvious from scripture to me, but some believers believe that you can become perfect in this life. Now what's interesting is that the people who believe that they believe that it's a theoretical possibility. None of them claim that they are, in fact, perfect, or they have, in fact, achieved that. The people who have, who've, like John Wesley, for example, who he believed that at some point in the Christian life, you could become perfect, as in you will stop sinning. And yet, he never claimed that he'd accomplished that, that he did that. He knew that he still needed to grow. So if people like the Apostle Paul and John Wesley and others that are spiritual giants in our eyes, they're saying, I need to grow. How much more should we be saying, I need to grow, I need to change too? The more we change, the more we grow, we must realize how much more we still need to grow and change. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, observed, wherever there is true grace, there is a desire of more grace, and a pressing towards the perfection of grace. So if God has given you grace, if God has done something in your life, if God has converted you, if God has blessed you in any way, the normal reaction to that experience would be, I want more of that. There's a desire for more grace, and there's a resolve to push forward until that grace is perfected in eternity. So you don't rest. You keep pushing, you keep pressing on, as Paul says, and yet we look around and we look perhaps at our hearts, we look perhaps in our congregation, we look perhaps at the Christians in our city, and we say complacency is all too common. So many of us are just happy with the way things are. Serious pursuit of God and commitment to holiness is is so rare. You know, in churches today, church discipline is a rare thing. We don't want to address sin. But by not addressing sin, what we're doing is we're leaving people in an immature state. Because nobody wants to come across as judgmental, and I understand that, of course. I don't want to come across as judgmental. And yet, unless we address each other's sins, what we're really communicating, we're saying holiness doesn't matter. And we can just remain in our sins and accept each other as we are, and we'll, we'll be fine. So we settle. We become complacent spiritually. And many churches affirm that complacency. And so we tailor our services to the lowest denominator. And we say, well, we're not going to do this because not everybody's going to understand. But how about teaching people to understand and grow? And so we don't want to challenge people because we don't want them to be turned away. Yeah, but how about challenging people so that they do grow and bring them in? That's hard. And both the parishioners are not expecting that, and frankly, the pastors are not doing that very much. We live in a culture where complacency is okay. Right? We talk about just, just the way I am. It's okay to be the way I am. And yet in Scripture, we see that change is necessary that we have to feel this holy dissatisfaction with ourselves. Think about the metaphors of Christian life in Scripture. It's, uh, for example, we, we grow like a tree and bear fruit, right? We put down roots and we bear fruit. That's a common metaphor for Christian life in Scripture. That's, it's based on change, right? Trees are not static. It's, there's continuous change in their organic life. How about another metaphor of a race, and Paul uses it here, but also in other passages, where we run towards a goal. We strive towards a prize. That's how Scripture describes the Christian life. And yet, that's not, for many of us, that's not our life. We don't see a goal. We don't expect a prize. We we are not growing or putting down roots or bearing fruit. A.W. Tozer who was a local pastor? He pastored in Chicago for a couple decades in the 40s, 30s and 40s, maybe 50s. He was on the south side, and he wrote a book in 1948, so which makes it a classic by now. I think, "The Pursuit of God," uh, Tozer's book, "The Pursuit of God." It's a great book. Read it. It's free online, and you can easily get your hands on it. And so, in the first chapter, he he, he and he was not a man to, um, to, to pull punches. And so he starts, his first chapter is entitled, Following Hard After God, because he saw a problem in his own church, in his culture of the day. And some of the things that he talks about in that chapter are so familiar to us now. It seems like he's describing our church culture today, except that it got worse, it seems. So he talks about how many believers live superficial spiritual lives, and they rely on teachers and pastors to do the spiritual work for them. They rely on programs of the church to kind of get them going and provide structure for their lives, and so it becomes more and more superficial. Tozer points out that many believers have been taught, and I think that's happening today as well, that just to accept Christ is enough, And so you don't need to feel any need to do anything else with your Christianity as long as you're in. If you made it in, if you made a profession of faith, if you, whatever different churches do it differently, whether you got baptized or walked down the aisle or signed a card or raised your hand, and that's enough. And pastors are very careful about pushing people beyond that point. They think everything else is optional. Some pastors do. And Tozer saw that, and this is what he said. He said, we have been snared... In the coils of a spurious logic, which insists that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. If we found him, we need no more seek him. I wonder how many of us are caught up in the same logic of saying, I'm a believer, God saved me in Christ by grace, which is absolutely true. But what is the right response to the grace that's been given to you? To sit back and say, I'm okay, I don't need to do anything? No, you don't need to do anything for sure. But why don't you want to do something? Why don't you want to grow? Why don't you want to glorify God with your new life now? Change is necessary. Friends, no one has arrived. No one can claim perfection. And so no one should claim perfection. No one should claim complacency and say that I don't need to grow, I don't need to change. I'm okay. So my question to you is, how hard are you following after God? Do you have this holy dissatisfaction? Do you have this holy resolve to pursue God and to make your life holy about Him? And so you look at your life and maybe New Year's is a good checkpoint. It doesn't matter. It could be any week, any Sunday, any Tuesday, where you sit down and you take an inventory of your life and you say, "How am I doing?" Am I pursuing God? Do I love Him with all of my heart, with all of my strength, with all of my mind? Intellectually, am I engaging with Him? Emotionally, am I engaging with Him? Am I serving Him with my life, with my body? Are those questions part of your prayer life? Is it part of what you do on a pretty regular basis? Is that something that you wrestle with in your life as you look and you say, I haven't arrived. There's much more change that needs to happen, so I will pursue it intentionally. Complacency is not a Christian thing. As we understand grace, instead of making us complacent, it's supposed to make us active and aggressive and intentional and adventurous. That's the Christian life described in the New Testament. So that's the need for it. Let's look at the goal. What is the goal of biblical change? You know, change for the sake of change, it's, it's silly. But Paul talks about the goal or the prize, obtaining something, making something his own. He's, he's very, the way, the way he's using this, these terms, he's very particular. Now, of course, we know that goals determine how you approach change. So, for example, if your goal is to lose some weight and become better looking, Right? Many of us, that's the goal. If you want to do that, probably a radical six-week diet is a good option for you. Right, Quickly, get trimmer, get better looking. But, if your goal is to become healthy, the radical six-week diet is probably not the best option. Right, It's probably better to lay down some healthy patterns, to start working out regularly, to start exercising, to start eating better. And so whatever your goal is, it will determine your practice. So what is Paul's goal here? Now to understand what he's striving for, what he's pressing on for, toward, we need to look at the previous verses of chapter 3 because he's been talking. Remember, this is a letter. He's just been talking about something and now he makes the statement about change. So I'm going to read verses 8 through 11 to give us some context and you will see what exactly he means about this goal or this prize. that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, if you read a passage like that, clearly, Paul is pursuing Christ himself. He wants to know him and the power of his resurrection. He wants to share his sufferings to be like him in his death. There's a, there's a focus on Christ himself, on his person. He wants to know him better, he wants to be like him. So Paul's pursuit is very focused. And yet, there's also a pronounced eschatological hope, meaning that he's looking into the future. Paul wants to attain the resurrection from the dead, he wants heaven. He wants to realize the upward call of God in Christ. So to use Paul's racing metaphor, if you imagine the spiritual life or the life in general as a race, as Paul does here, we might say that Christ is the goal, the finish line, and heaven is the prize awarded to the runner. So Christ is the goal. This is all that we're striving for. We're we're focused on him. We're going towards him. We're running to him. And then the prize is a fuller experience of Christ at the resurrection of the dead, in eternity, or what we call heaven. You see, Christ is the point. But the fullest experience of Christ can only happen in perfection, in eternity, in heaven. So Paul knows that not until the resurrection, not until he goes to heaven, not until sin is eradicated and eliminated from this world, not until he has a glorified body, not until all of those things are done, he can now fully experience Christ. Now, his experience now is real. Our experience of Christ is real, and it's increasing, which is why we keep pressing on. But then, when in glory everything is going to break open. And then finally, we get to experience Christ to the fullest, enjoy Him forever. So what we see here is that Paul is focused on Christ, anticipating the resurrection of the dead. But his goal, his point in life is to know Christ, to serve Him, to realize the fullness of fellowship with Him. So as you look at your life, let's apply it. As you consider change, the question to ask is, where in my life am I lacking Christ? How do I know him better? How do I experience him more fully? Would you be honest with yourself? You don't have to say anything out loud but I'm just going to ask you to be honest in your own hearts. Look at your life and imagine your life as a house, a house that has many rooms. And as you walk through your house, use your imagination. Barney says imagination. So Watch a lot of Barney. Use your imagination and imagine your life as a house full of rooms. And as you walk through those rooms, which rooms are wide open to Christ? Which rooms are locked, and you don't want Christ to go in there? Which rooms need to be organized and picked up and just cleaned up a little bit? It's okay if Christ goes in there. You're not proud of that room, but you know it's all right. There's some mess there, but it's okay. And which rooms need deep cleaning? You just really need to get in there. You just really need to fix it up. If you think about your life this way, that's how you understand change. Get in those rooms. Invite Christ into those rooms. Unlock those doors. Clean up the mess. Which ones of the rooms that you need to address in your life? And by the way, even though we are a church, I'm not just talking spiritually. It applies to all of your life. And we can throw in any part of your life into it. Don't think of this as just applying to your spiritual life. Your spiritual life affects absolutely everything in your life. So yes, think about health. Yes, think about finances. Think about work. Think about relationships. Think about family. Think about your literal house. Think about all of that. Where is Christ lacking? Where is he not invited to be? Where is he not welcomed in your life? Think about it this way. Be honest with yourself. You can't change unless you start with this holy dissatisfaction and you start thinking about your life and you be critical about your life. It's okay. We'll balance it out towards the end, but it's okay to be critical right now and say, what is it in my life that needs growth, that needs change? Now, I'll give you an example how it's not just spiritual. I, I, this is funny for me to talk about. You can't tell by the way I look, but I did start working out a couple of years ago. Thank you. Um, I recently talked to Daniel, and he helped me with some other routines. So I'm, I'm actually, I have routines now, which is funny, but I'm, I'm imperfect in that for sure, and I give up, and I pick it up again, and all that stuff. But my motivation is absolutely spiritual for that. I realized at one point that I want to, if I want to be a good dad to my children, especially to Evie that's getting stronger, right, and occasionally needs to be carried upstairs, I better do something with this body right here because it's not getting stronger naturally. So I need to do something. I need to do healthier. I need to be healthier. I've realized that if, if I want to be a good pastor, that, yeah, when I feel better physically, it helps. I do better at work. Right? I have more energy. And so when I run sometimes, <laughs> when I run, this is no joke. I really do think about Jesus. I really do. And, and when and that, when I have that you know, last five, ten minutes that I have to make at home, just forget my regiment. I just need to make it home at that point. And, and I need that extra motivation, I do think of Jesus. And I think this is a part of my life. This is the physical part of my life that he, too, needs to rule over. That he needs to be the Lord of this as well. Not just the spiritual, but the physical, my body. And so I want you to think about it that way. Your health, your budgeting, whatever your resolutions you have. Some of them are are absolutely right. Some of them are silly, but some of them are right. Well, connect it to Christ. If you think you need to manage your money better, what's what's a better reason to manage your money than than Jesus wants to rule over your money? He gives you money to use for him. And so if you're misusing it, if you're abusing it, this is is a good time to look at your budget and say, I will budget for Christ's sake. I I will do this. I don't like doing this, but I will do this because Christ will rule even in this room of my life. Now let's talk about the process. There's a need, there's a goal of... of of knowing Christ and experiencing Him more fully, but there's also the process. And Paul gives us two particular principles here in verse 13. He says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So he's forgetting what lies behind, and he's straining forward to what lies ahead. Let's break it down into two. What does it mean to forget what lies behind? Well, we know that if you live in the past, if you look back all the time, you are not going to be as effective in the present. We we know that. Here's an illustration from that. Now, I'm not a big fan of, well, of running in general, even for myself, but especially not watching races on TV. But apparently it's a big deal to some people. Some people really enjoy the race and, and going and watching guys run around and make a certain time. And so so I looked up, This one particular race, and it's a famous race, 1954, Vancouver Empire Games. By the way, I have no prior information about any of this, so I've looked at it, I've researched, and and I think it's very helpful to us as an illustration. Roger Bannister versus John Landy. Anybody knows those names? Both had just broken the four-minute mile earlier that summer. I wonder what the time is today. I'm sure it's 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 a lot shorter now. This was a highly publicized event. Now remember, TV is just now becoming popular, so people are gonna watch it. The newspapers are covering it, they're saying this is the miracle mile and the mile of the century, this is a big deal. Who's gonna win? You have these two very fast runners, both accomplished, and now they get to face each other in these games. They're different runners, however. Landy was a fast solo runner, as they described him. So he could set his own pace. If he was just running by himself, he would do really well. Now, the other guy, Bannister, was a racer. He needed to compete with someone. And he had that ability to to have that final finishing kick where he could accelerate. He would sort of save up his energy. and, And at the final straight, he would accelerate and win the race. He wasn't good at setting his own pace. He had to be with someone. He had to run behind somebody, and then he would overtake them at the last uh, last few seconds. And so Landy's strategy was to set a very fast pace from the beginning to drain Bannister of any finishing kick. He was going to drain him of energy. He was going to make him run faster than he wanted to run, to stick with him. And then finally, when they get to the final straight, uh, Bannister won't have any energy to have that, that final finish and kick. Now, Bannister's strategy was to run as evenly as possible to keep his finish and kick to the last straight. He didn't want to exert any more energy than than he had. In fact, he talked about being relaxed. He wanted to, to run evenly. And final lap, he wanted to overtake Landy. Now, this is what happened. Landy was running faster than Bannister expected. And so Bannister was falling behind, and he was forced to accelerate much earlier in the race just to catch up with Landy. And so finally, and he's, by this point, he's exhausted. Remember, he's not that kind of runner. He wants that reserve towards the end. And now he's realizing he's not going to have anything left towards the last straight. And so they're running. Landy is a little bit up front. Bannister is right behind him. Landy, he doesn't know how far behind Bannister is. He's assuming that Bannister is much farther behind. He's assuming that he had, he had broken him. They'd already exhausted him, and the race is his. And so he looks back. And as he looks back, he looks to his left. Bannister overtakes him to the right. Now, at this point, Landy now is broken, because he's realized that all that work he's put in, Now remember, this is a four-minute mile, right? So so there's all this drama happening, and, and they're just running a few laps. And so he knows by this point that he has no shot, because he had looked back. And as he looked back, Bannister gets the advantage. And even though Bannister is exhausted, he knows now he doesn't have to accelerate anymore. He just has to hold on, because he had broken his opponent. And of course, Bannister wins, 3588 Landy finishes 0.8 seconds behind him. Close finish. What was the difference? And they talk about By the way, both of these men talk about the race. And Bannister said, what happened is that when, when Landy looked back, he lost his confidence. And so Bannister overtook him. Now, that's an illustration from an area that most of us have no connection to. But we know in our lives that when you look back, When you focus on the past, when you live in the past, you constantly replay your past accomplishments or failures, it could easily prevent you from living a full life in the present. I'm going to use another illustration that some of you will not identify with. But there was a movie, Napoleon Dynamite. Anybody seen that movie? Switching gears here a little bit. Uh, Do you remember Uncle Rico? No relation to our Ricos, by the way. No relation. But, but he was this, this middle-aged uncle who lived in the van and just always had these odd jobs. And all he wanted to talk about is what happened to him in high school. He's saying, back in 82, I could throw a football a quarter mile. And he keeps talking about that. And, and he keeps trying to, to throw his football. And he's saying, if coach would have kept me in, we would have won state. And that's all he talks about. And because he's so focused on his past accomplishments and past failures, he can't live a normal life now. He's caught up in the past. That's where he lived, that's where his mind is. And so he is unable to make good decisions for the present. He can't get a good job, he can't form any meaningful relationships because he lives in the past. And so our past failures can easily prevent our future accomplishments. Our past accomplishments, if you relive in the glory days of the past, can make you settle for present failures. You can say, well, that's okay if I'm not doing that well now, because I did really well back in 82. Now, Paul is not advocating disregarding the past altogether. In fact, in verse 16, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So he understands there are some things from the past you need to be mindful of. You need to build on something that had happened. Certainly that's true, but there is an unhealthy looking back, right? There's an unhealthy obsession with the past that prevents you from doing something now. So let's not disregard our past accomplishments. You can celebrate them. That's okay, but let's not dwell on them. Let's not define ourselves by what happened. Let's not ignore past failures, but let's not allow them to paralyze us now, So I'm going to encourage you to read the Bible in a year, this year again. And we have some copies that are available, the plans available in the back of the Connect table. You're welcome to pick one up or I can email it to you if you'd like. But for some of us, you know, we've tried that before. And we stopped somewhere around Leviticus. We did good for the month of January, maybe February. But then you get to Leviticus, it's hard. And so some of us give up. Now, if you live in the past, if you don't forget that, if you keep looking back, you don't want to pick it up again. But if you want to forget what lies behind, pick it up again. Start at Leviticus. You know, the plans are just tools. They're just helps. Don't let that define you. Pick it up again. Start again. Do better this time. Don't dwell on the past failure. Now, for some of us, of course, we have read the Bible in a year and maybe several times. You know, sixteen years ago, I did that. And so now any time it's brought up, you're like, Well, I don't need to do that anymore. I did it, did really well, crossed off all the all the Bible books and chapters, did good, accomplished. And so that prevents you now from doing that. Why not? Read more of the Bible. Forgot your own system if you want, it doesn't matter. But don't let your prior accomplishments or prior failures keep you from reading God's Word. Now, Paul also says that we forget what lies behind, but we strain forward to what lies ahead. Along with not looking back comes a forward focus on what lies ahead. Again, please notice that there's no complacency here. He's saying we are pressing on, we're we're straining forward. You hear even in the English translation the strain right you're straining you're reaching you're stretching you're looking forward your life is forward focused you're, you're forgetting what's behind and you keep pushing and you keep running towards like a racer you go towards the finish line there's a drive here he's not giving up he's not quitting he keeps pushing and pursuing that's hard to talk about these kind of things and in my generation and in the younger generation. Uh, there was a song, John Mayer wrote a song, and again, I, I use it as an illustration, I realized, man, that's probably 15 years ago, or 10 years ago when he wrote the song. But, um, those back in my glory days, I suppose. And so the, the song was Waiting on the World to Change, and, and he was given an interview um, on the radio station, I was listening to it, and he was just saying how for his generation, There's no longer this desire to change the world. They got disillusioned with that. That's the prior generation. That's the baby boomers that wanted to change the world. Now, our generation, we're sort of just waiting for the world to change. Right? We're not committing to particularly a lot of causes necessarily. We're not expecting a whole lot. But we would like it to change. And so we kind of sit back and wait for the world to change. But that's not the Christian attitude. That's not... Paul's attitude. He's saying you strain forward, you reach forward, you run until you reach the finish line. You go at it, you go for change. If you read Paul's letters, it's, it's amazing how often he talks about goals and aims and prizes and, and there's, there's this, this whole in his mind it seems like he's, he's making these lists, he's talking about these things he needs to accomplish. That's how some of us think. We think along the lines of goals, and I think that's a good thing for us. So friends, set goals. It's good to do that. Look at this year and say, okay, what do I need to change? I've realized which rooms in my house need help, need change. Now I'm going to follow that up by very particular goals. What are you going to do? Are you going to budget? Budget, right? You're going to exercise? Exercise. You know, don't go crazy. Don't make these, these unreasonable commitments in January, right? Think about your life. Think what you can do, but then push yourself. Commit to things and do it. Commit to goals. Read the Bible in a year, right? Establish a, a, a prayer life if you don't have one. Be consistent with church. Go to a home group. Participate in a ministry. Do all those or any of those things. But set specific goals. Don't be complacent. And finally, and in your your mind probably mercifully, we're going to get to the motivation, to the last point of the sermon. Let's look at the motivation for change. Now, this is probably the most important issue because most of us know what needs to change. Most of us know how to do it. But why? Why should we do that? We give up on our resolutions so quickly sometimes because we run out of motivation. So why should we follow hard after God? Why should we submit our lives to Christ? This is Paul's answer. It's verse 12. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Once you get this gospel logic, And to the degree that you get this gospel logic, you will not lack motivation for change. We pursue Christ, Paul is saying, because he has pursued us already. We love him because he first loved us. We want him to be ours because he has made us his own. Do you see how Christianity works It's not change so that God would accept you. It's I have been accepted by God, and out of that reserve, now I will change. I'm not doing that to gain favor with God. I'm not saying if I don't change, I will not have a relationship with God. Paul is saying I have a relationship with God by grace through Christ, and so now I will change, and I will realize it fully. I will strain towards the goal. I will keep pushing. I will press on because I want more of this. Because God has already blessed me so much in Christ. Our relationship with God is not based on our progress, on our change, on our accomplishments, or our failures. God loves us. He accepts us by grace. What does that mean? It means not based on what we are, who who we are, what we've done, but based on something else. It's Christ's own accomplishments. Look at how Paul talks about it just a few verses earlier. He's he's talking about this righteousness that's not his own, that doesn't come from the law or from rule-keeping or from accomplishments, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what he means. He means that our relationship with God isn't based on us but it's based on what Christ has done for us. He came, and he made me his own. He got me. You see, he saved me. He got involved in my life, and now he wants to change me. What I'm doing by faith is I'm responding to him. I am not trying to get his attention. I am responding because he's already attentive to me his affection is already for me i'm already eternally connected to him and now my appropriate response is to run for him to work for him to love him better to get to know him better to strive for that goal for that prize for him this is how hebrews 12 the first two verses puts it, it brings those two ideas together our striving and Christ's accomplishments. It says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now here's the motivation. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We run because He ran the race for us. We endure because He has endured for us. He has accomplished it. We're working it out in our lives. We respond to His grace by intentional pursuit of holiness. And so as we come to the table, if you're a believer, if you are His own, if God came into your life through Christ and made you His own, you come to the table, and this is a reminder of the motivation, isn't it? His body broken, his blood spilled, a new covenant exemplified here at the table. And you come and you say, he did that for me. How am I going to respond? What am I going to do for him? You come to the table and you taste it and you say, this is real. Jesus did this for me. I'm going to respond with intentional pursuit of holiness. So let's pray and then we're going to come and take communion.